is going on, everybody? Welcome aboard the Soul Train. I'm going to be your host for the next couple of hours here. and We've got an extra special guest. But real quick, before we get into it, and so that way I don't have to repeat it 10 different ways from Sunday, I am broadcasting from J-Pink's house. we got a little mobile studio thing going because somebody hit the power pole in front of my house, and I do not have internet available at my house. And J-Pink was so kind to allow me to come here, commandeer his camera and a computer to be able to broadcast. Thank you, J-Pink, for being the producer you are and making sure the show goes on without a hitch. Our guest tonight, Jay Backer, in the house. How the hell are you, sir? Thank you. I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here. Get some answers from my my uh, mismanagement of my lawn over the past year or two with some bad advice. So, Well, this is the one thing I can promise you about tonight is that we are going to throw so much information at you that by the end of the show, you're going to be 10x more confused than you are right now. So strap I'll in. I'll write it all down. <laughs> Hold on for the ride because it's going to be a long one. Uh, but before I jump over to who's going to be co-hosting tonight, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what you do. Tell us what you went through for the last year. How did you end up on the show right now? Give us a little prelude. Yeah, so where am I at right now? Right, I live in northeast Minnesota, uh, pretty far north of Tennessee. Some may say Canada. But I work up here for the county highway department, uh, construction inspection, some engineering stuff. Nothing too exciting. But uh, we've lived here for a couple of years now, so I've been working on this yard. I used to do some construction management stuff for a nationwide general contracting firm. So started in Omaha, Nebraska, where I went to school, moved out to Maryland, moved to Denver, Colorado. Now we're here. But I grew up in northeast Nebraska, a small town, 800 people kind of thing, agricultural-based community. So you're always kind of immersed in it. I was thinking about this today. You You don't think about it a whole lot until you leave. Those kind of things, you know, uh, what's so common in agriculture. Everyone has a lawn that they're proud to take care of, that kind of thing. And it's fun to be back in a more stable environment now to take care of that and get more involved. But uh, grew up, I think I probably started helping my dad. Well, my dad was a kind of poster child for Scott's lawn, right? He does his four apps every year, watered what he could. And he always had a nice yard, uh, has greatly improved along the way to the in-ground irrigation, all that stuff. But uh, I really took a liking to lawn care at an early age, and he really had me helping him out and stuff, and it was kind of something we enjoyed together. So it's fun to have a place a little more settled down and keep working on it. But you get you get into the, you know, how can I make this the best I can? And you start finding information on the Internet, and it's not always good information. And can lead you to some struggles along the way. And I had a, I had a rough year this year and I got it turned around, but uh, yeah, it's going to be fun to go through and get some good advice tonight to keep on the right path instead of straying. Well, to help us guide you along this way, uh, well, to help me because you are in a part of the United States. I've never been, you're way up there. Like, Close to the border of Canada, right? How far are you from the Canada line? Uh, about 40 miles southeast. Southwest, sorry. 
Okay. So all the way up there where you need a passport to travel, I've got two cohorts with me. I've got Ray Ito and Ryan DeMay. Ray, how the hell are you tonight, sir? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm nowhere near Canada, but uh, I think agronomy is universal no matter where the hell you are in the world. So uh, hopefully I can help you out. Okay, Jay Becker? (laughs) Demay, I know we're flirting up there with where you're from and where you live and where you operate. Because central Ohio is, what, 20 or 30 miles from Minnesota? So (laughs) this is prime time for you. If anybody has ever experienced this, this is like, this couldn't be any closer to home, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. This would be like saying that living in Knoxville is like living in Aruba, right? I mean, it's the same (laughs) thing, right? You know, you all just walk out and you walk out and just get on white sandy beaches here, you know? Right, you just get out, get out of your cabins, and go past the outhouse, and you're right there at a white sandy beach, eating, you know, drinking a mai tai out of a coconut. Right, That's same thing. Right. Just like you know, I walk out of my shanty past the ice fishing hole, right, <laughs> and I make yellow snow, you know, on the way to my igloo. <laughs> no big deal. It's the same thing. I get it. I get it. Right. I'm excited to be here too. It's nice to talk to some cool season people and. You know, I think it's interesting too because just because it's cool season is it's a little bit different because like where he grew up is a very very challenging place to grow cool season grass and where he's at now is is equally as challenging especially with the summers they've had here uh, last year to a certain extent but this year it was a very interesting summer up there and I want to want to unpack that too so I'm excited I don't know I mean you know caribou. Uh, the Canadian Mounted, or no, Mounties, right? No, I'm thinking of something else with the Canadian Mounted. That's totally <laughs> different. But um, I'm excited to talk about all of it. All of it. I am too. And so, you know, I, what I, what was absolutely awesome is that, you know, he gave us a great little descriptor here of things uh, that he kind of uh, walked into either here nor there. And I, I think the most obvious thing to start with here is let's go ahead and, and take a look at the soil test. And even if it's possible, J-Ping, and I, I should have told you this beforehand, but I'm only thinking of it now. Can we do a side-by-side with those by any happenstance? Is that asking too much? No, uh, but here, I'm going to throw this up for now so you can at least look at some. Okay. So this is his spectrum analytic test. And I would, you know, typically... <laughs> I say typically. I don't really look at a whole lot of soil tests up there. So when I say I'm in foreign territory, I'm in 100% foreign territory. I've seen a few out of South Dakota on some uh, some work we were doing up there. So it's not completely uh, out of my grasp. But, you know, we see here soil pH is much lower than I anticipated at a 6.3. Um, we got good K numbers. P numbers are a little bit little bit iffy and uh everything else looks about a-okay right so not too terrible of a starting point uh also the cecs are a little lower than i thought i would see up there too i I was thinking that would be a 20 22 um more clay content kind of sort of place but uh i think we're probably dealing more with some loam up there huh with the with a 9.1 
Is it easy to dig in your area? It's got to be rocky no. as shit up there. It is. So is it? I, I'll tell you how I take a soil sample. You, like you watch people stick a probe in the ground on YouTube. I have a piece of shelving bracket, right? So it's a, a C-shaped channel. And I take it out with a four-pound hammer in the yard, and I beat it down about <laughs> six inches and twist it around and pull up plugs that way. But you couldn't yeah, – it's hard to stick a screwdriver in the ground and get it to go down six inches because you hit rocks. I live in Rocky Top, Tennessee, so, you know – uh, we're, we're accustomed to much the same thing there. Go Vols. Um, <laughs> you know, real quick, looking at here. Um, <laughs> thank you, Jay. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm just <laughs> glad to go ahead and get that out of the way. You know, I went through and, and tried to give a, a fair, accurate comparison here to the, and I, and I hate to do this over your test, but I think it's a perfect example to do this backer, and that's why I wanted to do it. Hey, can I say one no. thing real quick, Matt? Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, the my soil test is from fall 2020. This spectrum mm -hmm. test is from this year, just so you're aware. I don't know if you saw that or not. Yeah, I did see the date on it, and um, and so you know how much how much of, of this movement it's it would be impossible for us to to tell from one to the other what is uh, efficacy of the products you applied versus the inaccuracy of the or, or a lack of correlation between the tests, right? So. You know, as you can see on your original test, you were well into into the sufficiency zone of, of phosphorus, for instance. And if we look at that value they cite as the sufficiency zone, you know, somewhere between five and 11 parts per million. However, we see here you are 28 parts per million. And if I recall correctly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the minimum level of sustainable nutrition is 21 parts per million. Is is that correct, or am I dreaming that? Uh, no, it's. Uh, I think it's 18, right? 37 and 18. Let me see. Oh man, I should know that. But here we go. Here we go. Yeah, 21. Actually, twenty-one on your phosphorus. Thirty, yeah, thirty-sevens. Uh, okay. So, in order for you to reduce your sufficiency level, there's a, there's no real correlation there. The only thing is that the guide tells you, you know, one says you're very well into the sufficiency level. The other one says you're barely creeped into the sufficiency level. So. What does that mean? How does that correlate? I have no idea. Did you reduce it that much in a single year through collecting your clippings and discarding them and not applying phosphorus through the course of the year? You probably didn't bring it down that much. Um, no, I applied did a you, shitload of malorganite and I put a lot of phosphorus down. You probably okay. tell if I have a calculator here quick. But. Well, if you did, then... Um, Yeah, you're you. So, in my opinion, is you were probably critically deficient in phosphorus, yeah. even though you put down 
a shitload of malorganite, it pulled you up into the sufficiency zone because the Malik 3 test will read that. Yeah. Kind of rack my brain here on how to appropriately explain that. No, well, I understand the gist of what you're saying. And it's just, like you said, it's hard to look at these two tests next to each other and really think that you could glean, you know, results what I did last year from a test that was inaccurate to begin with, right? Uh, yes. So we're getting a comment here. It said a lot of what I've seen in Minnesota is low on phosphorus. So that would that would kind of make sense with that, with that theory had there. So mm, kind of interesting. Uh, the other thing too, you know, kind of an odd of the sufficiency range on uh, sulfur and how those two do and do not correlate between the two tests. Um, the boron as well, um, kind of a kind of an odd one there. I'll tell you what's interesting is the boron. Oh no, never mind, never mind. Those did register the same. Uh, no. You registered a higher value of boron on a water test than you did on an acid test. Anybody have any input on why that would be the case? It, it Technically, it shouldn't uh, because boron is soluble over fairly wide range of pHs. Right. It's hard to tilt the pH one way or another such that you don't have it available. The only factor I could consider is with prolonged contact, otherwise insoluble boron-containing minerals then start to liberate whatever boron they have because uh, you have some, uh, I believe, calcium borate type minerals present in soil that are not immediately soluble but i can assure you that if you're to let that sit in water for long enough and let it hydrolyze then that boron will be liberated and become available that's my that's my only uh hypothesis on why you show more boron here on the my soil versus the uh, the spectrum analytical test, but what? please do not go out and apply boron because in most cases in turf grass you really don't need it, and it's not hard to go from enough boron to nothing grows there for the next five years. That was going to be my question is. How many times have any of any of buddy on the panel here seen a boron deficiency in turf, right? Yeah. Has there ever been a documented boron deficiency in turf? I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't but know, you know man. what? There's probably <laughs> there's probably a product that gets recommended on that my soil <laughs> test though, boys. <laughs> hey. And you know what? If you hear that and you don't like it, then prove me wrong, right? Tell somebody to just lay off the micros, right? That you need to cons consistently apply this micro and that micro and tell me that there's going to be a claimed benefit, right? Or a, a perceived benefit versus an actual benefit. So that would be my only thing. Um, 
you know, overall, I, I'm not even really going to look at the my soul because I don't understand it, so I don't know how to interpret it, right? Um, if you don't understand it, me. you should talk about it. Yeah, they, they mailed yeah. me a letter and told me that. So, uh, you know, looking at this, this is very workable, right? Now, physical properties aside, we're just dealing right now with chemical properties on the soil. So, you know, you said you've applied a lot of milorganite, but what was the impetus for that? Was that just you, you didn't know any better or what? Well, I think, so I bought this milorganite last year when I still was under the impression of how beneficial it was, right? And I had used it once last year in the middle of the summer, and I noticed response from it, and I was oh, that's good. And I watched this pallet sit down at the hardware store here in town, and no one was buying it all year. And so I waited into October, and sure enough, that stuff comes down to five fifty a bag. Like, well, okay, I liked it. I'm just going to use it next year. So I buy thirty five bags of it. Good deal. But <laughs> I uh, so when I then this is where kind of the bad year this year begins as I start using that stuff early spring. I think my first application of it this year. Let me just check to make sure I was right. My first application will organize this year, April 6th. Wow. And I put down 1.12 pounds of nitrogen. So what would that as be? No like point, as Damn, son. Well, and wow. there again, I was still operating in the, yeah, nitrogen is good. And I learned this year really well, too, that you cannot green up grass when it doesn't want to green up and that stuff that malorganite will sit there on the ground and do nothing until it heats up and then it all goes at once and that's not very fun well and it not not only that but you know the homeowner version right i'm not sure if they've changed the pro formulation all but the homeowner version changed eh, i don't know eight nine ten years ago to have you know roughly 40 percent of that is actually a quick release right so you've got ammoniacal nitrogen there that will release very quickly so for what's not getting in there right like what's the fate of that nitrogen that sits there in april in northern minnesota right that could be a little sketchy it could definitely be a little sketchy now a lot of that too is going to depend on the age of your lawn right you know they've done a lot of work at uh, michigan state in particular they have a very long-term study that's still in the ground to my knowledge right that's almost 30 years old now that shows you know, the reduction in uh, nitrogen fertilizer that you can apply to a mature lawn goes down significantly once you get into a, you know, say 15, 20-year-old lawn. And so, you know, they've looked at that for, uh, I think, I want to say it's been about 30 years now, almost 94 maybe. So, um, and looking at w what happens when we apply different rates of uh, nitrogenous fertilizers at different timings, and where does the excess end up? Like how much of it actually leaches through? And so I'll see if I can pull up some papers and throw those uh, up in the chat. Demay, is that also the same one that uh, was looking at ammonium sulfate as a nitrogen source and driving down the pH and effectively reducing dandelion populations, if I recall correctly? You're, you're, there's two different things there. The ammonium sulfate one... I know they've done some work there. I know they've done some work at University of Minnesota, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly. Turf Truth, if you're watching, if I get this wrong, go ahead and blow me up. Uh, <laughs> I believe 
I believe Brian Horgan did some of that work when he was still at Minnesota and now is at Michigan State. Uh, so the um, I don't know if they did anything with dandelions in particular there. I know that uh, there's that uh, part. Uh, whoa. What the, that was what's my that fault. Noise? That was my fault. Oh. Sorry. It's, it I thought like I hit bleep. mute. All right. Oh, okay. Um, anyhow, <laughs> I don't know if you can say that word on here or not, but I did. Uh, no, the uh, the dandelion one was about uh, potassium. Let me see if I can dig that one up too. Ray, do you know any links between potassium and dandelions? Not to get too far up the subject here, but I'll find and dig up these links here real quick. Supposedly, if you deplete potassium in soil, you will also discourage dandelion. However, uh caveat to that is when you deplete potassium, you can also compromise turf health. So... My answer to that one would be go ahead and feed your turf grass as much potassium as it needs and just keep a, a can of three-way handy. And yeah. That, that's, uh, that's, a, that's just how I feel about it. And Ryan, the correlation between high ammonium fertilizers and dandelion if that's what you're looking at, is that high levels of ammonium ions in the soil will impede uptake of potassium to some degree. Okay. Because ammonium is competitive with uh, potassium for uptake. But that huh. happens only at very high levels. So you have to be really up there. It doesn't normally happen this. on the However, right. I have seen that I have seen that happen when people do something very stupid here and they try to green up palm trees with straight 2100. Oh, yeah. Horrible idea because what they do when they do that is they impede uptake of both K and magnesium with that excess of ammonium. And they basically send mm. that palm tree, you know, down a spiral. The good news here is that Jay Backer does not have to worry about palm trees, right? Mm -hmm. only, only Matt walking out of the triple wide onto that white sandy beach is that's it he's got to worry about that <laughs> listen i i don't know why that creeped into my head i remember <laughs> that it was just that it was a very long-term study and i thought maybe it was the same thing it has nothing to do with um, my triple wide okay it I'm has nothing it to do right with with uh uh bowling green scoring another field goal either so sean you can <laughs> shove it right now it's uh it's everything's fine Hey, tell Sean, let's play softball, okay? Now, <laughs> moving on. Uh, that's not inside baseball either. That's inside softball, like way inside. All right. So about, about two knuckles, in fact, I'd say. Um, so this uh, Michigan State study thing, 
let me pull this up, J Pink. This is a nice little graphic off of here. I will fire this over to our illustrious producer, who's doing a great job, by the way. I mean, accommodating a displaced friend so we can record this thing that, you know, you know, a couple thousand people might might tune into. I mean, that's 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 good. And that's good. All to right. To be fair, Asami said that he can spend the night. So maybe we'll braid each other's. Uh oh. <laughs> I, all right. I mean, literally, it's if this is going to be a true sleepover, whoever passes out first, we need to know who's getting uh, three things, right? Hand in warm water, right? So you can pee the bed. Uh, number two, uh, you got to wipe. Your, your your rear end on the pillowcase so that person gets pink eye and then lastly <laughs> got to get a magic marker and draw all sorts of phallic structures all over the face <laughs> that would be the only way to have a true sleepover i don't care what age you are that's the way to do it now if we can look at this graphic real quick go on here let's see is there is osu turfman on no spoiler i don't care we're gonna win i mean Matt thinks he's going to win the national championship, right? He thinks they're going to win the national championship. I know Ohio State is going to be in at least the playoff. I'll be realistic with my expectations here. Jay Pink, you got that graphic ready? Uh, yeah. Well, then I'm. Yeah. You're good. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. It's coming. Who's the big spoon? And oh, who's the big spoon? Uh, boy, yeah. Oh, well, certainly I am. I'm significantly taller. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, <laughs> my wife just come and said, <laughs> J-Pink stole my husband. Oh. Asami. Asami, help. Help. <laughs> she dropped him off and sped away. She abandoned him. Don't listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> oh. She's like, walk home. She was not. Oh, so this okay. is. <laughs> this is uh, so Ray. This is from Michigan State. This study they got in the ground, I think, about ninety-eight actually. So it's closer to twenty-five years old. And you can see here these are uh, radioactive isotope labeled N inputs. So Jaybacker, what they do in these studies when they're doing like N capture, right? They will label the N with a radioactive isotope so they can pull it out and identify it, right? To know what they put down that particular year or during that study and separate it out from what's being mineralized in the soil or coming from other um, exogenous sources, so like lightning or rain or whatever, okay? So what you see here, the high rate of N, right, what we're pulling out of the soil versus what we're pulling out of all these other things. So I just want you to focus on soil, right? And comparatively speaking, 13% more, right? On the low rate of N, so we're getting more on the soil there versus where it ends up in all these other areas, right? And particularly like leachate. So really the the take home message, and there's a lot of good information in this paper. We'll link it up here. I'll send uh, JPink the link so we can drop it in YouTube as well. But 10 years is sort of the critical mark, right? In terms of the time axis, okay? Once you get to 10 years on this cool season lawn, we do run the risk of significantly increasing our leachate on nitrogen. So again, you're in a completely different climate and something that is good to bring up at this point is your growth uh, potential model curve, right? And this is something I, you know, I didn't know this until probably this year. Cause I think I saw Michael Woods from Asian Turfgrass Center put up 
you know, several different graphs from a couple of different places. And Minneapolis was one of them, Jay Backer. And it was almost like this. It wasn't so abrupt up and down, but it, uh, Minneapolis, you know, had a little bit wider of a plateau in the middle of summer. But I thought to myself, man, that is just what you said when you sent us your, your notes, right, for the show. That looks like a warm season graph. Now, again, a warm season graph is not going to be that abrupt. But basically, you know, you're doing everything. You're not bimodal like we would be in a normal cool season climate, right? So for the folks at home, bimodal means that spring and fall, right, we see peaks in this graph. I'll put that, I'll send that over here to Jay Pink so he can show us what a normal cool season growth curve looks like. But in your case, Ray and, and Matt, two warm season guys, what if I told you, right, you've got this type of growth curve, but you got cool season. Would you grow, would your approach, not like products and just take products and everything out of it, but your agronomic approach, would it be any different, right, in terms of what you were trying to accomplish in those three or four months at which you were heading into and heading out of peak growth, be any different? in this situation with cool season as it would be with warm season. It would be exactly the same. I mean, it would be identical. It would be the same thing. I'd be pushing the grass uh, as best as I can from, you know, spring until months before dormancy. You know, uh, it would be feeding time until the the snow starts. (laughs) Literally, I agree. Yeah, you know, hundred percent. Let me see. Feeding time. <laughs> I mean, look at this sharp yes. fall off from August, middle of August until October first. I mean, that is one of the sharpest fall offs I think I've ever seen. Let me guess: October first for you, it's just like you enter a, a completely different dimension, Jacob. Um. Yes and no. It just down here. So. I was explaining this to someone earlier. Sir, today. that is up here, not down there. Down <laughs> in town on the lake, it's like a thousand feet lower than just a mile outside of town. This town backs up to cliffs. And it's a real Maybe. it's a gentle microclimate. So we don't get snow as early as they do. From October first to November, the grass just really almost doesn't grow. Let me uh, I don't have it brought up here. I think the last time I mowed the lawn last year was October 14th, and I and it was green until November 1st when it got snow. But my mowing, like as of September 14th last year, when we got our first frost, it just went. It crashed just like this graph did. You know, you you're looking out there like, well, I, I feel like I got to be mowing, and you go out there. Well, the grass hasn't grown yet this week, so we'll wait a little longer and wait a little longer and. It does. It it just it's amazing how fast it slows down. Yeah, because you know when does the snow melt? Oh, down here again. It's warmer down in town, so I would say you could probably count on the snow being gone by April first. Okay. Okay. So March March is a month of pretty much of mud. It'll start melting in early March and it's usually gone about early April in the couple years I've been here to see it. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it. When I say this ravels a warm season lawn that I would be treating here, we start to break dormancy around April first. May, mm-hmm. you're starting to see some good green up, and you're starting to make that first furred app right. June, all of a sudden, you feel like a hero. You got coverage. Everything's green. It's growing. You're mowing. July, you get to 4th of July, and you're like, oh, snap. You know, look at this shit. I got a fire yard. August gets there. You start running out of light. Really, for August, in us in uh, Bermuda, that's where you've kind of hit your pinnacle. You're starting to step down in your growth rate, your clipping volume. You still... You're chasing, you're chasing that that last little push for the end of the year, right? So, you got two ways to do that. You can either furt more aggressively, right, or um, uh, you know, raise your height to cut or something to however you want to draw your color out. But you know, typically what I always did, which is you know, people could argue with me that I'm wrong, but uh, what I did was always get a little bit more aggressive with my furt in August, and uh, and then in September, you know, I'm really starting to back it down if I apply any at all, depending on uh, you know, kind of how things look. If it's still, you know, wanging in 90 degrees in September, then yeah, I may, I may be a little bit more aggressive on my last app, but um, like, you know, right now it's 82, 83 degrees and um, you know, we're consistently out of the seventies at night now. And, and so, you know, I'm thinking about like, ah, you know, it looks like it might get cold a little early this year. So I may, I may back off and not apply anything in September. And then by the time October rolls around, it just, it ceases to grow anymore. There's just not enough daylight hours to support, you know, vertical growth of Bermuda grass. So it's very odd. It's very odd how much this rivals Bermuda. I don't think I've ever seen a growth probability chart of cool season grass rival Bermuda this strongly. Same approach, right, Ray? I mean... Yeah, yeah. It, no, this this kind of reminds me of uh, what you'd see out of Bermuda, and specifically Bermuda, where it, you know, April, May, it's waking up. Uh, from July to August, it's at its best, and then by October, you're done. It's it's That's you it. know, you're over. You know. You mow for the last time, and you put it to bed for the winter. That's right. So, Jay Backer, how did you have this epiphany? And you don't need to talk shit on anybody. I mean, we're here to do that, right? We can take the heat. Um, <laughs> but what was it that, that made you say, huh, maybe that 1.2 pounds of nitrogen from that Milorganite on April 6th or whatever, eh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Like, what got you going that way? And, and hang yeah. on, hang on. Start back up a little bit before then. Give. No, no, no. Never mind. Go ahead. I think you gave you gave enough of a of a precursor there. Yeah. So I'll just say my to sum up last season. I was following some stuff that is popular online, right? Most people are watching these guys on YouTube that I was following, and I was really kind of after that same bimodal growth pattern like Ryan's describing. And Throw that up, JP. I, I slammed it last year. I think I gave it five pounds of nitrogen last year. Oh, my God. And yeah. Thinking, oh, oh, yeah. 
right? Right. You hear the words nitrogen drives the bus, throw her down, all of that kind of stuff. And you think you're a champion, right? I did a good job this year. And if some so, is good, more is gooder. Exactly. And so I start this year under the same impression. And I think it was, it would have had to have been the middle of July or something. I mowing every three days, I was probably cutting grass from seven inches down to three and Jeez. just like can't keep up with it. Right. It's just exploding. So then what do you do? I, I have a little, you know, project, uh, this riding lawnmower like, well, to hell with this. I don't care if it is side discharging these clippings. I will go over them a few different times. I'm not walking this yard that much. So you start throwing those big clippings down and you start to see the thatch building up. You're like, Oh man, I'm, I'm really in a bad place here. I'm doing something wrong. Why am I so over fertilized? And I start looking into it and it was, I don't, I don't know if it was just diving in far enough, but I start hearing Matt talking about this pace climate appraisal sheet, right? Okay. I'll fill it out. I need to look at this. And then I started catching a couple episodes of Ryan and Ryan's podcast talking about some different stuff. And I think there was one episode that you guys talked about this toward the end of July or something, maybe this very occurrence. And I was like, ah, that's exactly what is happening here. And it's my fault, right? <laughs> like I put down all, it's all your fault. Yeah. And now it's releasing. <laughs> and this is, this is on top of on May, May 24th this year, I got a, I got a hair kind of like Matt has described before. And I mixed up this full rate of quinclorac and mesotrione and speed zone and went after some stuff. And yeah, the fine fescue in my lawn is no longer in my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> is that, is that a was, win or a fail? Well, the, my, it got me to a point, I think it actually was, it was a huge fail. My yard looked terrible all year this year. And so you have guests over, right. From, you know, back home and stuff You're like, this is our house looks awful, but it got me to the point where I got, I got pushed to find answers that I needed to find. Right. And then I got all of that junk out of there, overseeded it. I, I really truly understand what Ryan is preaching when he says the lawn care year starts in the fall. For me, that is, it's seriously August 1st. It was like my whole lawn restarted. And now I'm at a point where I'm happy with it for this year after overseeding it and stuff. Given, you know, my past year, I'm not saying my lawn is perfect or great or anything like that, but it's not like it was the rest of the year. So I learned, I had a bad year, but I learned a lot. That's for sure. Hmm. I That's learned a lot amazing. more than if, if I would have had a good year, I would still be doing spending money that I don't need to spend doing work that I don't need to do. Right. Putting all this stuff on the lawn. And yeah, it's a, uh, it's been a journey. Well, and, and it's, uh, I'm glad to hear it, man. Honest to God, because here, here's the thing is that, you know, it's a, it's, it's fair to ask the questions you asked but it is an entirely different level of understanding to go out and seek the answers. Right. Not necessarily that you're not satisfied, but like continued. Okay. Hey, well that answer to that one question just made me come up with two more questions. Right. And yeah, you know, well, and that's where I'm like, I got to talk yeah. to these guys, right? This is a format that's available to people. Like I, I have to call in 
I am, I'm so in up to my ears, right? This looks, you know, we're talking about warm season growth patterns. I don't live in a warm season place like help. Well, and I think that what that does though, is that, you know, you, where I, you know, I say in cool season that this starts in May. Jay Pink, can you back out the picture of the cool season, the bimetal? I just want to show folks that what we're talking about. That one I sent you, just blow it up so or back it out so we can see the whole year. I've never read okay. the Bermuda Bible, but I wonder if that guide is more applicable than any of the cool season guides in his. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So this is what I'm going to say to you. Jay Backer is here is a typical bimodal growth pattern on cool season grass, right, Ray? So we see, right, you know, big massive shoot growth here in spring, April, May, right? And this is this is really roughly drawn, but in general terms, right? Let's just accept this for general terms. You know, big flush root growth, and then what happens in summer here? We get dieback. We get die, you know dieback sloughing off of roots, mainly for two reasons, right? Number one reason, Ray, is that. Soil temperatures here, even in the Midwest, can approach 90, 95 degrees, right, on cool season turf. That's not going to bode very well for root health, root development, root mass, right? And so the other big thing, too, and especially in the tough summers like we had, even in Minnesota where it was an exceptionally tough summer, right, is that we're going to have uh, respiration rates, right, the consumption of the carbohydrates that are in the roots are going to be faster than we can photosynthesize, right? Because as we get hotter and hotter in temperature, right? And more difficult growing conditions, photosynthesis is going to slow down. Our respiration is not going to, right? Because we need to be able to continue to stay alive and that consumes food. And so we lose roots because of that. So, you know, fall is supposed to be this big time of root development. And I would argue that, you know, on this graph, it kind of shows a little bit that fall is less root development than spring, Certain grasses and species react a little bit differently, but generally speaking, I'm pushing those roots in the fall, right? To have them uh, come springtime. And really, that's where you're starting off your quote unquote fiscal year for grass. Now, all that being said, in your case, Jay Backer, you're just like what Matt said. Your uh, April one really is the beginning of your fiscal year. And it doesn't mean that right out of the gate, you need to go out there and pour a bunch of fertilizer on it, but that's when you're going to start to see things waking up and just getting started, right? And then really it's going to be for you that May, June time where it's it's starting to be go time and then taking it from there. So, you know, not to say that you couldn't do a fall renovation and have success and, and all that kind of stuff, but your calendar is wildly different, right? Um, you know, compared to just about most cool season people that we talk to. And I think that's important. That's why the PACE Climate Appraisal Forum is such a great tool is that, yes, it's averaged and, yes, it's indexed you know, according to 30 years of weather data, but, but it's going to give you a very good idea of what to expect, right, in terms of growth and what you're facing. And so I guess based on that, what you've seen now, so you went from... I'm having hey, the realization right now that... You you brought You're up a point Canada? about no stop it, oh. don't scare me. Um, they speak French up there, and I get real weird around foreign languages. Ask my of, wife. Plenty of camping sites up there. Very nice. <laughs> this is available this it's weekend. Beautiful. Some of the most. <laughs> some of the I'll, most. I'll make the reservation. Beautiful terrain in North America for sure. Um, 
but you, you talked about seating and seating schedules and myself included preaches fall seating, fall seating, fall seating, fall seating. Well, not up there. Para- paralleling with Bermuda, you know, you're looking for that early summer seating, right? And that almost makes ex- exact sense. I mean, it does. That's when you would want to seat there. Late spring, early summer, get your seat down mm-hmm. and have a successful year. Screw but, the fall seating. But, 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 here's going to be the challenge. And so it's easy to look at that and say, hey, yeah, you can do that. But you're still going to have pressure from summer annuals, right? You're still going to have crabgrass up there. You're still going to have other sure. summer, summer annuals to deal with. So it's not just like, hey, weather's going to be good all summer long, should be pretty you know, mild. You know, comparatively speaking to most cool season country, we just go right after this. You're still going to have to rely on some tools, right? And be very good at timing on herbicides, right, Ray, for summer annuals. Why don't you talk real quick, like if you were in this situation and knowing that, Jay Backer, real quick, can you describe to Ray like your June, July and August weather? Like when, what's the hottest it gets and what's kind of like the average high, low, generally speaking through that period? So in June, it's starting to heat up. It's not there yet. I think you would see lows in the mid fifties at night and maybe highs in the low eighties. And in July is when it kind of is about at its peak July and early August. And even into mid August is probably at its peak. We're starting to see lows in the mid sixties, low sixties at night and highs 85 is a pretty warm day. 80 is probably average, but you can see 90 degrees. We saw some high 90s uh, this year during that time in the day. So it it's not hot like the south is hot, but when you're not used to it, and that's kind of one thing I think about all the time too, is, is the grass that is used to having a cooler summer more affected when it is extra hot, I guess, plain way to say it, but okay, definitely. I would say anecdotally, there's, I, I don't have any research to back that up, but I can say definitely that, yeah, that, that happens. Ray, go ahead and say what you're going to say, but also I want you to answer the question of uh, conceive this in your mind, right? Mm-hmm. Jay Backer is going to have to see Memorial day ish, right? Right. And crabgrass pressure for him is probably not going to really like peak or at least germination is probably not going to hit until, geez, July 4th, maybe, maybe around then. So what's your, what's your weed control strategy, right? Pre and post, if he is in the situation where he just says, I'm going to go out there and nuke the lawn, right? I'm going to show all those relatives that are coming back up here to visit how I can grow some grass, right? You guys see my growth probability model, right? It's framed right there in the bathroom, okay? Like, just take a look at it, okay? You put, your, you put your hand up there, take you your weight off the legs. Past. Yeah, just just take put your hand up there, take all the weight off your legs, lean into it, and I want you to take a good look at that graph while you're doing it, okay? So, Ray, what do you got here? What If that was the scenario, given what he just said about temperature and climate and all that, and a Memorial Day-ish seating, what are the things to look for from a herbicide standpoint that you can push and pull and all that kind of stuff? And also factor in the, that there could be fine fescue involved and what would be some of the 
um, you know, the more you know PSAs on that. Okay. If you do have fine fescue involved, you need to be ultra careful about tenacity. Because Bingo. Ten- tenacity is kind of kind of mean and then the other grass that I mean the other product that can be mean to that fine fescue is that combination of carfentrazone and 2,4-D speed zone. Because I even see that with various other softer, fine-leafed grasses that speed zone is a burn and return at that point. It gets kind of nasty. It works, but be prepared to see some damage. Now... If you do need to preserve fine fescue and you're overseeding, you need to look at something like low rates of quinclorac or you deal with your crabgrass post-emergently with something called a claim extra, also known as phenoxaprop. Phenoxaprop is something that's kind of underutilized and it's probably because it's about a hundred dollars a pint you don't need very much of it but it's expensive (laughs) yeah so that's really helpful i appreciate it i keep speed zone and mesotrione and quinclorac in the cabinet so those are i i've burned a lot of stuff up with them but i know it can kill it too (laughs) I uh, <laughs> I have my my real trouble isn't crabgrass as much as it's I have a lot of I'm just gonna call it ditch grass I think it's predominantly barnyard grass that grows around my place and oh boy I oh uh, my god barnyard I struggle barnyard you know the, the go yeah the go to there is gonna be aerial views of my place we can talk about it. This is wow. the before. This oh, is not nice my place. Property. This is this is before I moved in. But you can oh, see that... oh, okay. this is this fall. Holy but cow. you can see the trees and the ditches there are just that grass. I I think that barnyard grass is rhizotomous. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's my head. Yeah, it it creeps into there hard, and it's tough to kill. I got to do two applications of a mix of mesotrion and quinclorac to feel like I got it. And in the meantime, that is just lighting up the fine fescue like nobody's business. And and to you know that fine fescue that main the main part of the lawn around the house had a real, it was a nice mix of that fine fescue really distributed evenly through there. But these two areas out by the street and the road are, and we can get into the details of those. I don't care about them as much. They're more circumstantial. I don't water that front section. That's kind of an L shape at all. It's just, I retreated this year to just taking care of what I could control easily. 
with the garden over there in that other section, it gets watered when the garden needs watered. Like I, before I took this picture, I don't think it had seen water for a couple weeks because my onions are drying out. So I don't care about those, but they're very patchy. They'll have like patches of fine fescue, some patches of bluegrass, patches of barnyard grass, all sorts of weird stuff going on with them. And I'll, I'll try to probably manage those. I wanted to talk a little bit about hard fescues and fine fescues and that kind of stuff that Ryan might know more about because I feel like I have a really terrible outlook on those types of grass, but I feel like I'm misunderstanding them as far as drought tolerance and stuff like that goes up here. So just real quick, I Googled it and uh, it is uh, rhizomatic and is perennial as well. I did not know that either. Oh, yeah. I thought it was an annual too. Cause if you look at, if you look at like, I think it's, I mean, label for control and I think it's on, when Clorox labeled too as a controlled species, I God, I swear that they listed as annual, and I might even have seen that on the University of Minnesota's like weed identification page that it was an annual. I don't know. Maybe uh, I could be wrong. No, no, I'm wrong. This is it's a different Latin name I'm looking at. I'm sorry, I was too deep onto this, and I'm looking so at a different foreign Latin languages. Name. Yes, this is uh, Echinocla pyramidalis, and uh, the barnyard grass is Echinocla cruis pavonis or cruis galli. I'm sorry. Cruis galli, yes. Yeah. The, but then any grass that will go winter dormant and then reemerge from that <clears throat> rhizome and root system the next uh, spring, I call that a perennial grass pretty much. And... Because it's perennial, and it ha- and if it has been there for a while, that is why it might seem like it's rather resistant to control, and it seems like you got to hit it two times with your uh, Nisotrion and Quinclorac to truly get it, because on perennial grasses, typically Quinclorac will take two applications, and same is true with the uh, Nisotrion. So it it's kind of following the script, so to speak. Yeah, and I, I'm fortunate that, you know, those instances are occurring in a part of the lawn that is lower input for me, right? I don't care if it goes dormant in the summer. I just keep the weeds out of it and let it get rainfall. I'll fertilize it, but the mm-hmm. a lot of lawns up here are not... <laughs> uh, there, there may be some variation here based on where it grows regionally. Um, I'm looking at the uh, North, Car- North Carolina State uh, turf grass files, and they state it is not rhizomatic or stoloniferous. And I wonder, huh? I don't know. I wonder. I wonder if the the lifespan or something is uh, is different and thus causes slightly different growth characteristics out of it. And that's why you may see it talked about in different ways. I don't know. Just throwing stuff out there. I just presume you're you know, like it, it. It's, it's kind of like you see, you know, here down south, right? Um, uh, uh, Poa annua, you know, legit dies from the heat. Uh, where you may have an area in like northern Pennsylvania or something where 
it may start to check out, but it never does fully go away to the course of the growing season just because it never hits that critical threshold to fully kill it. And so it, even though it's poa annua, it still exists as a perennial in that type of environment just because it never gets hot, hot enough for it to fully die. But you're just throwing things out there at this point. I'm seeing what's sticking. Is it sticking? I don't know. It's sticking it, for sure. It's sticking, yeah. Is it sticking or stinking? Which one is it? Because it can go either way. Okay. <laughs> Sticky. 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 <laughs> that, so that, that front section, though, like it is sticking because it was just, it's like you couldn't do anything to control it. Uh, that grass just stayed like, you know, you hear all sorts of stuff like, oh, it's an annual. This is an annual. This is an annual. And it just stays there. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's not doing anything. So that's when I loaded up that mesotrione and the and the quinclorac and the speed zone. I was like, oh, it's great. Well, let's do it. Burn in return, baby. Burn in return. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, 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 and then I got. Well, I, I, I did what I shouldn't have, and I went after my big quack grass problem in this section of the lawn with it, and that's when I burned up all that fine fescue. What'd you go out with? For rates? What? Or for, so it was the mes- it was the mesotrione, speed zone, quinchloric mix? Yes. Well, I knew I wasn't oh, going to control gonna... that. No, oh, I knew that, but it. I wanted to, I wanted, I defoliated it. It was complete. I couldn't see it, and then it came roaring right back. Oh, I was gonna say, quack grass, quack grass in a lawn. Ray is the prize fighter, right? You knock it down, you get a standing eight count, and that some bitch is gonna stand back up and punch you right in the jaw, right? That's Tyson, man. Mm-hmm. Like he will get back up, rip your ear off, and then punch you in the face. So, Jay Pink, do you, you have know, those pictures of that quack grass I sent you? Well, let's talk management strategies of quack grass. How do we? Ooh. How do we handle it? Ray, you want to you want to this tell is, him what you would do if you what what kind of turf picture, type is this? Is this oh, is awful. mostly it, it's mostly bluegrass and tall fescue now, but this uh this picture Ooh. is like two two or three days after mowing. That stuff just Ray, shoots up. Tell him what you do, Ray. I know what you do. I know what you're gonna tell him to do. Don't say methyl bromide, Ray. No, soul stealer. You're you're in the world of soul stealer because quack grass to me reminds me of what I have to do when yeah. someone doesn't want their zoysia or their Bermuda anymore and they want something else because quack grass is also rhizomatous and deep rooted and Speaking to what Ryan said, you can think you did well, get out that roundup and just spray it, right? You think you got it, but then after that one application of roundup, you put your seed down after that roundup application, you think all is well, and the quack grass will come up with both middle fingers pointed at you. Yeah. I, so you got to make so, sure that it's dead. <laughs> yeah, I have I have problems with it 
around my edges and it'll creep, you know, up into beds and stuff like that. And it's just amazing when you go to rip that out, how long some of those rhizomes are. I mean, a foot long, it, mm -hmm. it's tough stuff, but I don't know that part of the lawn. Once I get everything else squared around, I, I may, we'll see. I don't know. You guys tell me if you think that overseeding, you know, over the course of a couple of years is ever a true way to achieve color uniformity. I don't know that it will ever actually work or if my lawn will continue to be, you know, different variations of the color green. I may just nuke that whole thing off with Roundup and just plant like a, it, I might do ryegrass, but I don't know. I, I'm not trying to do anything low up here because all the rocks, I'm just going to stay at that two to three inch range. But Well, you know, you can, uh, I guess, do whatever, you know, whatever is desirable to you. But my point is, is that no matter what you do, make sure the stuff that you don't want is dead. And you know, when you said that it gets up into the nineties in the summertime, that gave me an alternate idea where, you know, that area where you have that quack grass problem, what would it be like if you cleared that area off? Uh, tilled it up and then fastened black plastic over it over the summer. I have a person that lives in my house that would not like that very much. I think, Ra I think Ray, I is he going to have enough heat to take it out covering it? Well, I'm thinking about Ray, when I, when I say the nineties, it, uh, the nineties are, it's a hot day. It don't happen all the time. I don't, it doesn't happen I'm, all the I'm, time. No, I I wouldn't depend on anything for heat, but I could probably I could probably spray it with glyphosate and then follow it, you know, two or three times after that if you felt like something like that would be sufficient to get it sprung actually, back up and, and hit it again. Actually if I if I had to go after something like quack grass, I would definitely be doing that multiple moa mix to make because you see the thing about glyphosate is that glyphosate doesn't travel through the rhizomes that deeply versus something like flazifop or fusillade because fusillade is known for taking three to four weeks to kill something but when it does kill something that sucker is dead because in that three to four weeks, it has systemically moved through the entire weed, rhizomes and all. Ray, can you say those couple chemicals again? I'm writing them down. I'm sorry. Okay. Fusillade. And okay. you can add mesotrione or your tenacity to that. You know during that kill-out application because that just adds to the effect of the fusillade because this is called a burn but no return. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it, so it sounds like you need it because I see quack grass and I just am not going to blow smoke up your ass and tell you that there's some kind of a 
selective control for it that's guaranteed to work, and especially not one. I gotta zoom in here. Ah, don't do that. <laughs> is, that negate. Is, is that negate? Yes, no. that's negate. What no, it's doing? not. It's MSM. It's MSM. Oh. MSM. <laughs> yeah, but then, then the problem with MSM is that if you're trying to keep tall fescue tall or fescue. ryegrass alive in that lawn, uh, aloha. <laughs> aloha. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know that I would ever even try to keep the desirable turf grass alive if i went after that quack grass it just it's something that i know how resilient it is i don't want to fail right i'd I'd spend the money on whatever chemical just to make sure that it's fucking gone because it's horrible it's so bad well yeah yeah but that's the that's also part of this compressed time frame right that you'd be under if now let's just say selective control is not on the table let's just say hey we're gonna go full send on a on a renovation right you got a compressed timetable man like it's gonna be let me hear your let me hear your thoughts on on what i did this on so i seeded this overseed on july 31st i think it was so i'm not gonna have a whole lot of time with it but something like that, do you would you expect to see some significant dieback this winter from something like that? Because that grass is so young going into it. What did you overseed with? Dirt type tall fescue. I would expect some attrition. Yeah. And would you uh, really? I'll have to go back. Yeah. There's. Uh, I, I'll tell you. I don't think he's I don't know if he's there anymore. Let me see if I can find this guy. So I will tell you this is that you really, really ought to connect with the folks at the uh UMN turf program because they, you know, a lot of what they do, they do a lot of really good applied research, right? Where they're looking at like these specific questions. Like if I do a late seeding or uh an early or a midsummer seeding of tall fescue, what kind of you know attrition can I expect? in uh a lawn area right so they've done a lot of work with this let me see if i can find it is so hard for me to wrap my brain around it being so cold that you suffer attrition of tall fescue like i've just i've never seen that before ever so i've seen i've seen it here in ohio man i mean we have one you're what 40 miles away from him so i mean it that's fine but yeah i mean if we both unzipped our pants we probably could tell oh sorry uh, no, we're not that close, but <laughs> okay. No, I mean, the... like a couple partitions over the rest. Something different, yeah. Yeah, it does no? I just, does. I would, I would just imagine that somehow, uh, you know, you know how I complain about zoysia. I'm imagining that turf type tall fescue pink can be just as much of a prima donna not too cold not too hot it has to be just right you know because what i'm hearing is that if it gets too cold in the winter turf type tall fescue doesn't really doesn't like that i mean that's that sounds hard because i thought that it's dislike was oh heat and humidity in summer 
So it's like, okay, so where is Turf Type Tallfescue happy? <laughs> I always kind of think mm. about up here, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on snow cover, Ryan. I mean, it's not uncommon down here to have three foot of snow over the whole yard. If that makes a difference to protect your mat, they have five foot of snow cover up the hill just a mile out of town through the winter. <laughs> so I've seen piles that tall. When I was in Iowa, I saw like <laughs> Ryan Nor had not a even driveway. A pile for Iowa. Ryan Nor had a driveway and then to the side of the driveway it was probably like three to four feet where he had continually cleared his driveway. But it wasn't snow cover that covered all the area. You know what I mean? Like it was that stretch. I can't wrap my brain around that kind of snow cover, man. How far are you from Jackson, Minnesota? Who is the, there's a lawn care YouTuber up that way. Um, what's his name? Uh, Chant. Jackson, Minnesota. Something like that. Let's see here. Oh shit. Five and a half, six hours north of there. You're north <laughs> of there. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's not even. I wouldn't even call that very far north, but I mean that. Yeah, that's. Lord, right, Jackson is go. clear down by Falls, South Dakota. Someone put a map up and show Matt where these places are. I don't know how to. I don't. Think he I he just listen. I'm, I'm not shitting you, man. There's no there's no point in doing it because it's just like as soon as you cross over into <laughs> Kentucky, it's just Canada. It's Canada. Yeah, I, I wish have. he could I mean, see. I have no culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish he could see how far north I am of Columbus, Ohio. I think it would really blow his mind. It's the. It's probably like a sixteen-hour drive, maybe more. I'm gonna. I, yeah. I'm gonna look it up. It's a long ways. I'm gonna look it up. So okay. Um, I do want to throw up this link for you, and we can th- have J Pink throw this into the chat. I will again. I think connecting with the Minnesota University of Minnesota people is a good idea. They have a really extensive, probably one of the more extensive turf breeding programs in the country for a university outside of like Rutgers, let's say, and UCR University of California Riverside. Um, and they're really looking hard at the fine fescues, right? And so there is some excellent data. Let me see here, and of course, that. Uh, Jaypin, go and throw that up, and then Jaybacker, you can check that out. That's um, University of Minnesota's. They're they're basically their own NTEP site, right? And what they see amongst the cultivars that they test, right? And some of them are uh, experimentals that maybe they only have that NTEP doesn't. So it's worth looking into and seeing, you know, what might be possible, practical, what you can actually get your hands on, all that kind of stuff, just to have a better sense. Uh, you know, tall fescue for you, I don't know that you're going to see a ton of attrition, but if you seeded it at, on the July 31st, should be okay, I would think. Um, if you told me you seeded it here like today, I'd be like, mm, I don't know about that. So you've taken the right stance of trying to seed early enough to have it established. I mean, typically, really, if you think about like when your winter quote unquote starts, you really seeded what maybe 
two, you know, two months to ten weeks, eight to ten weeks before that, which is typical of you know what we would see here in a typical uh, bimodal growth pattern. So I, I don't think you're wrong for doing that. All that said, I wouldn't expect it to struggle mightily. The snow cover thing is definitely going to help. I think you know you got to watch out, and I don't know. I mean from a uh, snow mold perspective of coming out of winter, like what did you see on your lawn this year uh, coming into spring? Was it just hammered or what? Well, so the first year, and I, I don't mean to answer your question. The first year was bad because I know how long that grass was when I put it to bed. Cause I didn't know any better and I didn't give a shit. I had, you know, a baby on the way kind of thing. We lived two hours from the hospital. He was delivered at like, yeah, I don't care. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. But uh, so, so that year, man, yeah, snow mold and holes in the lawn. It was nasty. So last year, I I cut it down two inches, maybe even a little lower, in like late October before it went to bed, and I saw very little snow mold this spring. Um, I did my one areas my areas, my patches that struggled were predominantly ryegrass patches. You know, you buy Scott's sun and shade mix. It's pretty much ryegrass in the bag is what you're going to get. And, and that struggled pretty bad, but it greened up fine and came in later in the summer. But I, I don't know how much truth there is to some cultivars of grass being more resistant to cold versus, you know, the type, right? Are there really ryegrasses that are going to withstand the winter compared to these ones that didn't? I don't know the answers to that kind of stuff. I know cutting my grass shorter seemed to help not deal with so much snow mold. I, I do think there's credence to certain certain cultivars doing better in different climactic conditions for sure. Selecting based on cold tolerance, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find good data on that across a number of sites, right? And this is why I think that looking at University of Minnesota and actually like having a, uh, you relatable. know, some some actual, yeah, some relatable and, a, and an empirical data. And then I think you're going to find that the people at UMN are, are pretty amenable and would talk to you, right? And give you some good info. So um, That's really definitely how much How much rain do you get a year? Are you in a uh, desert-like climate or... You get rain regularly. <laughs> shit. Yeah, so we live... Holy shit, Matt. I'm sorry. I got to take a second. <laughs> we live in we live in the Canadian Shield is what it essentially is. It's boreal forest, so it's predominantly coniferous forest. And, I mean, it pine trees, right? It, if, if it's not cut down too clear for... A space, then it's just trees up here. There's a significant amount of rain. We're very far behind this year and deeply struggling with fire issues. But so, see, I did. I, did, and I, I just, I know. When I you just get love that Matt that area, has no idea. It's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't it. read about. <laughs> Listen, we didn't have Canadian history in no school. We got American yeah. history. <laughs> <laughs> we won the You're war actually we didn't fight any wars <laughs> yeah but we would have won it you know what i mean america all right go on i'm sorry 
No, I, I, you know, I know like you get into Montana, right. And, uh, and I think even, what is it? The Western half of North Dakota and South Dakota are more desert like than, uh, than anything else. So I didn't know if you were close to that, you know, when you say you get a significant amount of rain, when you, when you say a significant amount of rain, are you saying like 40 plus inches a year? Um, no, no, it, it's not like where you're at. I I would guess it's probably around 20. I, I, I couldn't tell you to be to be real honest, Matt. How can I, J-Pink, can I share my screen? Can someone bring up a satellite image with a little pin drop where I live so Matt can kind of see the way that vegetation what's grows? The, what's the, the name States? of the town? I've got a map open right here, and I was just literally scrolling around Minnesota. It's, yeah, yeah so it's called here, Grand Marais. What's that? Here, I, can I type it in the chat? And, yeah, I was going to yeah, say, if you want to dox can yourself on in the, the internet, then, uh, then you could just... Well, it. the other problem is you always have to spell it because it's French, just like Matt likes. <laughs> well, I mean, now now we know, you know, now that we know your address, all the girls know where to send the solar panties. Oh, you're right on the lake. Yeah, yes, on, yes, right on the lake shore, like a half mile from the lake. Okay, interesting. <laughs> what? I've just never seen you this mind blown by the Dude, geography. He, he, I, well, I love he is it. way love further it. north than I thought. Like way He's further up north. There. Yeah, he wasn't kidding like when Canada. he said he was like forty miles from the border. He's from the border yeah. there. Like he's. I, I thought you were like over by Grand Rapids. <laughs> <laughs> Get your get your cackles in. I I just love it. I love it. I, I'm so curious. I'm so curious. Listen, I hate to be so uncultured in public here. That's in the fine. winter, can you just walk out on the Great Lake there and it's frozen? Can you just like scale? Well, on? you. you- in the early 1900s, it was a lot more common for it to freeze like that, but it doesn't. It doesn't really do that anymore. Not to that point. I mean, there might be two or three days where there's six or seven inches of ice out away from the shore, but it can move when that lake is, you know, all liquid like that. It can move and shift real easily. So you could never. I would never imagine that in my lifetime I would see that. So, and you, y'all are suffering from the wildfire pressure right now as well. Yeah. So all the jokes about like you coming up here, going camping, and that stuff. There, you can't go camping anywhere up here right now. The national forest is closed. The Boundary Waters Wilderness Area is completely closed. It's pretty wild. Gotcha. I was going to look up the average rainfall in your area. Yeah. Um, look just at a pure national falls or something. So sure if typically it it's 29 inches of rain, which is, I mean, that's a, that's a good amount of rain, right? It's more than Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also over what I consider a fairly abbreviated growing season. Because when I hear 29 inches of rain over about a, four five month growing season that is doing pretty well because i'm thinking on the basis of approximately an inch of rain per week 
you know, we average have got an, we've got about an inch of rain a month since May. Okay, oh, that's, so that's a drought. That that's a drought. Yeah. That is actually a drought. If you got uh, an inch per month, that's that's a drought. No good. <laughs> Someone, someone's trying to kill me. One step at a time. All right. So, what other questions do you have for us? I mean, I, I, I think it's a challenging environment. There's no doubt about that. It's a short growing season, and you, you have some challenges that we haven't talked about with anybody else to this point, right? And yeah, whatever. it's it's mild though, too. Yeah, it's mild. I mean, I don't mean to come on here and be like, "Well, oh, poor me, I don't know what to do." Like, you, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You can no. easy to grow grass, but yeah, I well, I got a lot of questions for you guys. Uh, well, then go ahead. Oh, we got time. Okay, oh, yeah. so we were looking at the at those soil tests earlier, and I put down, I think it was around. 0.6 pounds of phosphorus since I got that soil test and it was with some nitrogen. It was just Scott starter fertilizer that I could run down to the hardware store and get because I wanted to get my grass something when it was a week old, right? I mean, you guys don't really seem to be scared by that number at all. Like, oh man, we got to really get that bumped up or anything like that. And that no, was my no. other question about this was with the sulfur and I, Matt glazed right over that too. Like, yeah, don't waste your time with it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's nothing I would get like excited about where you know, I'm like, Oh Lord, we're at 17 parts per million. We, we got to start dumping it boys. <laughs> right. Because when you're, when you're close to the optimum, as far as the sulfur goes, if a little bit of your fertilizer content came from, say, ammonium sulfate or, you know, sulfate of potash, that would be just enough to, you know, kind of get it up there. And the objective overall being that your CEC is not that high, I'm going to tell you, do not soil load. Because if you soil load... You're probably going to lose whatever whatever you threw down when everything is all wet and muddy and rainy in the spring. So you'd be better served waiting until the weather stabilizes, you have good growing conditions, and then you feed your grass as it needs it during the summer. Again, kind yeah, of treating it like act, actively growing Bermuda. <laughs> Well, and that's yeah. where I'm going to go to next year is I'm going to just kind of bump it along with urea. I'm going to spray it. Um, mm -hmm. And the other part of that, so I have this jug of micronutrient fertilizer, which I don't even know if I need to put down. Is that, should I? Should I leave it alone? I hate to even think, I don't like the idea of, you know, letting something sit there and throw it away, but at the same time, I don't like the you know, I've learned my lesson. Don't put stuff on the grass that the grass doesn't need, right? You can you can spray it. You'll be fine. Um, I so wouldn't go like, blazing high rates. Uh, 
but in addition All in moderation, to what you're doing, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you'll, you'll be fine. So with that, do you guys, and I, I've never really, I don't think I've ever fully understood this with micronutrients. I always have just watered them in. I guess sometimes I've left them on the leaf. Can you even get foliar absorption of micronutrients? Yes. Depends on how it's formulated, but yeah. Okay. What kind of what product are we talking about? Can we can we say it on Micro-green the air? Microgreen from yeah, we're gonna say it. Oh, Microgreen okay. from from okay, next. yeah. So yeah, those it, are sulfated micronutrients with uh, with a little bit of citric acid in it. So um, you well, you've got a soil pH of six point three. So eh, I would leave it on the leaf as as long. You know, I'd say at least 24 hours, something like that, to maximize what you're going to get out of foliar uptake. Sure, sure. And because then the next- you're, that's pretty much primarily all the uptake you're going to get out of that product is the reason why I say that. Okay. So the, the next part of my plan next year, um, tell me if I'm wrong for doing this, but I have been spraying some Teenex on this grass just to slow it down while it's been over fertilized and i've i've noticed and maybe it's from something else too i don't know but i feel like i've noticed a color response that i've liked from it is that a waste of time and effort and product to spray teenex on something that tall i i um, noticed a reduction in mowing from it i guess no not at no. all that's a good idea no no, no. for a variety you're, you're, of reasons all the same reasons on any grass yeah and Especially if you're trying to mitigate the effect of something like milorganite. Uh, and if you're faced with the prospect of not being able to keep up with mowing, uh, I think Teenex is a logical response to it. And here's the thing. You start to think twice about Teenex if the Teenex causes excessive discoloration or worse still that Teenex application opens up your lawn to disease. I don't know that you're going to see a ton of disease up there. The only thing that I have, the only thing I've dealt with is leaf spot and I, I have stopped it and I feel like I've held it off this year with the use of your favorite sheepskin condoms, granular fungicides. (laughs) so next year Uh, though i next year i think i'm going to instead of using granular thiophanate methyl i'm going to pick up some clearies or whatever generic you don't think so that a bad idea (laughs) no it's not at all like please please get yourself some triple three six or any of the off patent generic uh sprayable Thiophenate methyls, you know, there's a, a very pronounced, you know, resistance risk with those products. But in your case, you know, the biggest things I think you're going to face outside of snow mold is going to be leaf spot, number one, and maybe to a lesser extent, dollar spot. I so would. Have, what do you think about propiconazole with that Tnex? Will it slow it down <laughs> too much? Or? Oh, yeah. It's, it's going to slow it down a lot. Now on fine fescue, I'd be a little, a little bit leery, a little nervous. Yeah, and I don't know. I like uh, fescue you, together. You, you tout uh, 
you tout your respected uh, pathologist friend all the time, use it till it doesn't work. And I kind of like that mentality. I don't, I don't tout anything. This guy Joe right Vargas. Here. Joe Vargas you, you is a smart guy. Like, he's, you he's, him a he's, few times. Listen, he, he is a smart individual. He is probably one of the best turf pathologists that will ever walk the face of this earth. I am not going to ever doubt what this guy says. But when he no, no, says... No, 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 you use ahead, this until it stops working he has an absolutely crazy look in his eye matt and ray know what i'm talking about not because they know this guy because they have seen i, I mean there, there's got to be somebody that where you work jay backer that at some point in your career that has looked you in the eye and said we're going to do this and it's going to be done this way and this is just the way it's going to get done and you're not sure when they start talking but by the end of it you're like all right listen either this guy knows that this is going to work or he's absolutely insane and i just don't even want to go against what he's going to say right because he might kill me that's the way <laughs> i feel when joe vargas talks he might stab me right if i say you know what i might go with two modes of action and rotate my frac codes and he could legitimately pull out an envelope opener right and just cut my throat i don't know but uh I digress. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it's okay. I think in your case and in your climate, like it's going to be hard to get like hammered with disease other than leaf spot and dollar spot. And there's easy ways to play that in your, in, in your situation and, and work to your advantage. Right. So if that becomes an issue, I think the, the pivots there are, not you know could you could make them cheap as you as you want to you can get into some fancy stuff or whatever but it's not that big of a deal in my mind yeah and that that's where i was just kind of hoping to keep it cheaper with the propiconazole on the triple three six instead of i just the price for a bottle of azoxystrobin and the pressure that i know that i'm facing is like do i really need that right mm -hmm. probably not yep. no probably no. not yeah yeah yeah, because you are not in what I consider an ultra high disease pressure area because what I paid attention to is you don't have the nighttime temperatures to have a Correct. severe disease problem. You just right. don't have the nighttime temperatures. We'll rediscuss when your nighttime temperatures never go under 75 in the summer. Then we'll talk. <laughs> Right. Then we talk again. <laughs> but when you say it goes down to 50s and 60s, even though it's gone up to 90 in the daytime, do you know how I would love to see temperatures like that where I'm at? Because I don't know if you would, Ray. Was, <laughs> I, I would. I, I really would because... Uh, I, I'd not be as cranky. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, 50s at night, I, I'm a happy guy. Oh, man. Uh, I don't know. 50s at night is, is good here, too. Um, we're just getting into that same thing, and I'm sure it's much chillier up there. But uh, I still think, in your case, like you... And this is really like a Minnesota thing, right? Like I was saying at the beginning of the show, the Minneapolis growth potential model kind of blew my mind where 
it, it this is the danger of like preaching to the masses and saying hey because you have cool season right like the fall is your time and you go ahead out there you know like uh the late season end fertilization right like you get these guys and you know we're going to interview john Ware here knock on wood hopefully in a few weeks on the lawn forum and talking about you know the the nitrogen blitz that they like to do in the fall um you know pushing a lot of nitrogen in the fall in your case i don't want to say that would be cataclysmic right because of the you know the the uh snowball pressure that you might face and all that but there's really no benefit to it because your growth isn't there right and that's not just top growth right that's root growth just is just the same and i think that you run the risk of, of of putting good advice in the wrong people's hands how's that it's not bad advice it's good advice in the wrong people's hands and that's yeah, what and happens when to matt's point the oversimplification right <clears throat> oh you got cool season grass oh yeah just go out there in the fall and throw her down you know just do it wait what you ever been to Grand Marais, yeah. uh, Grand Marais uh, Minnesota before? Yeah. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> heard that. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Grand Marais Minnesota? Did you know such a place even existed? Nope. I sure yeah, as hell didn't you, know I mean, people Matt, there. In Matt's world, you may just may as well just live in Saskatchewan. I mean, that's just that's where you're at. Let's you know what's the difference? Lake Superior, the James but, Bay. Who gives a shit, right? Like, yeah, but it's all the same. See, only Jay that. Backer laughed at that because he knows what the J- James Bay is. <laughs> He's clued in. <laughs> all right, what other questions you got? Okay, here's one. Um, so I got a tow behind sprayer and a backpack sprayer that I use, right? Normally, I just keep glyphosate in a two-gallon hand can for cleaning up beds and that kind of stuff. If I was to do a renovation, I know there's tank cleaners you can use and stuff like that. I mean, do you guys have any advice on making sure that your sprayer is cleaned out after you use glyphosate or anything? Like, I, I've always just used a hand can for, you know, your three-way and a hand can for your uh, glyphosate and kept them separate because I never wanted to get into any problems having a can contaminated with glyphosate is that even a problem i guess i've never had glyphosate contamination like that but as long as you rinse it out um and i'll how how sure do you want to be here's the thing is that even at low rates so what is what is the uh growth regulatory rate on tall fescue is it two to four ounces of it's only two ounces, yeah, two yeah. two ounces per per acre. But per acre, what I'm gonna yeah, but what I'm gonna say about something like glyphosate or, or in a in a sprayer, if you remember to flush that sprayer out until the water runs clean, you have no issues. Uh, if anything, I've seen more catastrophe caused by people keeping different sprayers containing different things. And my favorite one was the fella that mistook his nutsedge and broadleaf backpack for his glyphosate backpack. 
Oh, and he proceeded to, and he proceeded to spot spray nutsedge in somebody's lawn. That didn't turn yeah. out too good. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you what, like, I remember in the golf course days, any sprayer that had ever, I'm talking like ever in its lifetime, had Roundup or glyphosate in it, was locked in a cage, mm-hmm. right? And I didn't care. Like, oh, you're going in there, right? Only I have that key. And if you need to get in there, that means that you're going to kill everything you touch. So go on in there and get the Roundup sprayer. That's fine. No big deal. When you... When you rinse your sprayer, one of the most overlooked things and most of the accidents I see related to uh, glyphosate carryover contamination or accidental killing out of it is when people forget to clean the hose and the wand. Recirculate fresh water through that. Pump system, yep. Yep, because that holds liquid. And so you may have cleaned out the actual sprayer itself. You go pump it 10 times. That first 30 feet you spray is toast because that's still your full rate of glyphosate that was in the hose and in the pump. So make sure you do a complete and total flush of it. And, and, and you, should be, you should be good. You should be good because in my 30 years of applying various products, often through the same sprayer, I've never had a problem as long as rule number one as soon as I'm done with one application, I keep on running water through it until that water no longer resembles my previous tank mix. So if there was glyphosate in there, uh, it, it, the, you know, the water had better be coming through the nozzles and the spray guns clear, not foamy, not bubbly, whatever. If it contains something like broadleaf herbicide, it had better not be milky. And it had better not be smelling like 2,4-D or dicamba. You know, I just keep on running. And in the case of something that I can't smell and it's active at rates as low as one-tenth of an ounce per acre, that's when I get into the tank cleaners or else a solution of potassium hydroxide to solubilize, hydrolyze, and degrade that previous product and then flush that through until, of course, you get clear water. Because, by the way, concentrated potassium hydroxide kills plants, and it does it fast. (laughs) Right? I mean, I'm on the same page with you in... You know, it's just like a a nice Saturday night with the old lady. You know, you get if it's if it's milky or it smells like two four D or anything like that, you clean out the wand. You got you know, maybe, yeah, you know, you it, it might hit the floor. <laughs> you might be aiming at the toilet, it might hit straight down, you might hit the wall on the side of it or whatever, but once you clean it out, you know that it's transitioned back to what it should be and you you know that you're thoroughly you're cleaned out the system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you just treat it like that. I mean, we've all been through this drill before, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. Right, so don't treat your backpack any differently. Treat your dog. That's all. Mm-hmm. That's all. So yeah, that's my advice. Relatable. Solid. Solid. Oh, we've Solid. all been there. We've all been there, right? <laughs> what else you got, J- sir? J- J- 
Jay Pink, do you have a picture of that rock edging that I sent you? Yeah. This is a, another question that I have. It's pretty in the weeds. This one? Um, or... Yes. So this one right here is fine. Um, this is something I struggle with in just a few areas, and I, I'm not sure why. Like, So I have – I just – glyphosate up against the house up against these borders and stuff like that to uh, keep the I have quack grass and Kentucky bluegrass that creeps into them right and up against the house they're all nice and straight I trim the edge with a string trimmer but along some of these rock borders this one is the worst one you see how that grass edge really waves in there and I I can't pinpoint why that is it's not my string trimming. It maybe it is in some instances. I'm not perfect, but I don't know if you guys have a thought on it. Maybe glyphosate, you know, misting off of those rocks when it hits it, or I'm just okay. trying why to figure out like, how. Why it, it's not clean like a straight edge? Correct. And you that's, that's so wait. Yeah, I you so in this case, if you 100, percent if you want to have a nice sharp edge and. and Ray can tell you here too, like whenever you get rain, irrigation, whatever on that, it's going to move, especially if, after you just sprayed it. And you can have these real weird edges because glyphosate will move. Ray, why don't you tell him about a non-selective that won't move? It's maybe not the best in terms of systemic activity. However, you can get a good, sharp, clean-looking edge by spraying what non-selective, Ray? Diquat. You can use diquat, but I don't like people that don't understand Diquat even dealing with it or handling it. And just yesterday, I did a job where somebody had the rock stacked rock wall all around their, you know, their lawn. And so what I did to finish off and clean up where my rotary scissors couldn't get, I broke out the propane torch. And I just burnt off about an inch. <laughs> I'm picturing Ray in that like fire suit, just just out there giving it hell. I, Ray I is love that Fireman Bill. Yeah, well, let me tell you something. <laughs> actually, uh, I have a torch setup where I have a pencil tip burner on the Me end too. of the oh. <laughs> of the wand and it just puts out a very sharp and directed flame it's not like the you know ground clearer torch where you light that up and you can take out an entire lawn with it this one has literally a very narrow directed intense flame and i just run that along the rocks and there's no hazard and any hazard can be mitigated by just having the water hose nearby ready to put out anything that gets away from me <laughs> i'm oh, just really, thinking of the because... forest fire ray let me ask you this what do you think about what do you think about in this case of glufosinate that's what i was thinking that would of. be it no, that would be another option, uh, but Ryan, Cheetah Pro. I'm not sure. Cheetah Pro. Yeah, I'm not no, sure. Finale. Finale, yeah. right. But I'm not sure how well 
that's being that's marketed towards consumers because I mostly see glufosinate marketed towards the pro applicator or the grounds manager or the golf courses because for a brief time back in the 2000s I saw Finale marketed towards consumers and then it got pulled off the market. I never saw it again. So yeah, there's it's the the label has come out of bear for finale because there was I don't know the exact story, but something of like a monopoly basically when having that and uh, spectacle in the same catalog, right in the same same product line. So Cheetah Pro is out there now from New Farm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Actually, Ryan, here's what happened. You know when Go ahead. Bayer acquired uh, glyphosate? That is when they had to give up glyphosate so as to not have a monopoly on the yes. non-selective and burn-down products. And so I see now that BASF is the you know manufacturer and seller for finale. Yep. So that, that that changed, but then what I don't see is I don't see a lot of glufosinate products marketed towards consumers. Not yet anyway. Yeah, uh, I, I wonder see, if that I is coming it. in the pipeline with uh with the the more complications taking place with glyphosate. Is it just a matter of time? Are they waiting until supply is exhausted? I wonder what that's uh, going to be. I would, I, I, I would, I would think they're going to gear up for sure. Go ahead, Mary. Go ahead, that, I would speculate that they are going to market that glyphosate until the drop-dead date, and then they're going to transition over to glyphosinate, but... Uh, I do know of this one product that I think the Lawn Stripes is familiar with that is advertised as a non-selective weed and grass killer, but that exact formulation horrified me because what was in it, Ryan, was a combination of Diquat, Dicamba, and Fluazifop. Damn, did Ecomite make that? No. <laughs> no. That that that's that's the that was the spectricide non-selective weed killer and sure enough Shit. I looked it up and it's like why is there like one point something percent diquat in this bottle this is uh this is a little, little alarming <laughs> to say the least now, so the glufosinate <laughs> you know Jay Backer I looked on do my own I don't know where you can buy from locally up there but. They're waiting on stock. They do make a half gallon bottle of it. It's seventy five bucks, something like that. It'd be worth a have. I mean, the, the the from a practical standpoint, like the nice thing is that where you spray it is all that gets touched. Right, it will not move. Mm-hmm. So the good news is, is what you spray is where it'll stay. The bad news is, is that it's not a systemic. It's a burn down. Right. So you could trim that edge out. You know, I would I would kind of lean towards what Ray is saying. So for my money. I think this is where you can look at a product like SureGuard, right? Or even Spectacle Flow if you really want to get a little spendy and have a product that sticks around for a little while um, in your barn. But these are areas where you can put those non-selectives, right? 
it, it to clean up whatever you have, but then use these pre-emergents on the backside to prevent anything from getting in there. And then, right, use uh, something mechanical to clean that up. So whether that's a pair of rotary scissors or reciprocators, uh, a bed redefiner, you know, just a regular old stick edger, something like that. If that's the look that you're going for, then cool. I don't know. Are you going for a sharp, clean, crisp edge, or are you going for sort of that kind of natural edge? No, I'm, going for, edge I'm going for that sharp edge, and I can achieve it in other places. I just turn my string trimmer over, and I can get it like against the yeah. house and stuff. But those areas don't receive irrigation like this one does. That makes total sense that you're talking about that glyphosate moving into that edge, because I spray sure. every edge with glyphosate, and then I just trim it with that string trimmer. And everywhere looks good except for this and a couple other areas that see heavy irrigation. Because I is don't have spring. Sloped? Is it sloped yeah, from it... the rock to the grass? Mm, not not heavily. It, it may be enough for water to run that way, you know. But water could splash off those rocks too and, you know, push itself that way. I wouldn't. I, I When you said that, I was like, He's, yeah, hey. what it is. Yeah. He's an engineer. We, we're going to need a full topo survey on uh, twelve-inch grids <laughs> in this area. So, as soon as you can get on that, that'd be great. I have you know, the, so I, I surveyed the perimeter of everything with my GPS unit. <laughs> Want to see the CAD file? Bro, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Bro's out here Thank with his you. with his total station, just just taking shots all day long. Like his wife's like, "Are you serious right now?" Like. No, uh, yeah, I, actually, I'm serious right now. Yep, yep. Well, I'm going to build a 3D, ca 3D cat bottle of my property. You got a problem with that? Everybody <laughs> that's normal does that. Everything. I So I measured, and you guys kind of saw the property, how nothing is a perfect straight line or square or anything. <laughs> and so I measured everything with a tape and stuff, you know, and I was probably 25% high when I did that compared to my survey. So you talk about applying extra product you don't need and stuff like that. Like, oh shit, yeah, I'm mm. over fertilized even more. <laughs> yeah, that's that's well, and and that's something too that people people don't do is mapping. You know, mapping their property, not necessarily for, uh, you know, y-axis stuff, right? Of where you know where we're at and elevation wise, all that kind of stuff, but just to know dimensions right well this is it's about five thousand square feet you go out and you apply you know like a bag of scots you know like you said your old man did or my old man would have done and it turns out that hey dad the lawn's actually only like 3800 square feet oh well so, you know a little more is just fine right it's no big deal like actually it kind of is a big deal you just over apply by like 33 percent oh well, it's extra green. It's fine, right? And that's that. That's the unfortunate part, right? The the, the people um, that are doing this, the stuff that, that shouldn't be done a lot of times, it, are people that where you would ask the next question of what should I do different? How can I get better? What's you know what the is going on here right now? Like all those questions, people just stop. Right, and so that's that's uh, big of you to to come on here and and, and ask these questions. So, uh, anyhow, you know the 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 edges there. I think you know using that cheetah pro and some type of a 
a pre-emergent again, a SureGuard, right? Uh, that you can get in a, I think a quart or a pint bottle would be a worthy investment um, in those places. And then trying to find something good and mechanical that you can keep a nice crisp edge with, yeah. if not just using the weed eater. All right. Hell yeah. So let's, geez, man, Sean Smith is just, spent, he's, he, he should have he should have spent all these five dollars on prop bets that UT was going to fumble, UT was going to turn the ball over, UT was going to lose, right? That the Bowling Green cheerleaders are going to look better than UT cheerleaders, like all that stuff. He could have bet five dollars on prop bets and probably made more money than sitting here you know, watching he, us. He does that, and then all of a sudden, I think we're losing, and I check the scoreboard, and it's twenty-eight to six, and I'm like, okay, you know, why <laughs> why are you messing with me like this, Sean? You're in my head. I mean, I'm just wrecked right now. Um, He's just nervous because he bet, he bet the over. All right, go ahead. <laughs> what what else, backer? What else you got? Okay, I got a couple jugs of humic acid, RGS, and aerate that I just want to dump. You know, I'm talking quantities like a whole gallon of each one into my Tobehind spreader and just spray it out over this yard to get rid of the stuff. Do you think there's any harm in doing that in relation to the phosphorus with this five-week-old grass? Is it going to find any of that up? Or is that is that a risk even? Uh, I think the data says it is a risk, um, but I don't think there's any conclusivity as to what is specifically necessary to exaggerate that risk into a full-blown problem. Um, I think there's benefits to the RGS because of the synergy between humic and kelp. Um, I don't know what to tell you about aerate. No, and that's uh, fine. I don't need, I, I don't expect a finite answer. If I was more or less looking for Dude, dump all that shit on your lawn and get rid of it kind of an answer. And so to think that there's enough of a pause to be like, "Mm, maybe we'll think through this. I'll just do a half rate at a time. (laughs) Or, I mean, a half a gallon at a time. I think that would be the most prudent thing to do is to just, you know, half, half a gallon at a time, spray it out, water it in. That way you kind of... Give the lawn, you know, its dose of brown water, and you're done done with it. Yeah, yeah. And it's at, a, at an amount that is not going to have what I consider adverse effects. And on the area, just remember that it's an extremely alkaline solution. So I would, you know, be one to say. Apply a, as much as you dare to, and then water that stuff in, and you know, lesson learned. Also, big big caveat there with that product is, do not mix it with the fungicides that you just talked about. Ray, why would you not yes. want to do that? Okay, you remember how I talked about in a few minutes ago about using actual technical grade potassium hydroxide to flush out my spray equipment. The reason why I use potassium hydroxide is because 
it will solubilize and then hydrolyze whatever chemicals happen to be in the sprayer that I don't want. And what hydrolysis means is it takes whatever fungicide, insecticide, or herbicide and basically conjoins it with water and neutralizes it. So if you were to combine that with, say, your Cleary 3336, that fungicide would be degraded in a matter of minutes. And I don't have it on my computer right now, but I remember looking at a chart where I think it was Purdue University that published a chart that says how long various insecticides, fungicides, and herbicides last if, you know, at a given, so, you know, water or solution pH. And in the case of some people, if their water pH is too high, by the time they get out to the field or the green to spray, whatever's in their tank mix hydrolyzed and is now useless. Because I, I think you've heard me talking before about how I use a surfactant that drops my spray pH down to 5.5. Yeah. And, yep. and the reason why I do that is so that when my chemical is at that 5.5 pH, it's less likely to break down. But let me get this what is for it you, for right? I just... I just happen What's to it have for thiophenate missile? What's uh, it for thiophenate missile? Thiophenate uh, missile. Time. So when yeah, does it? Twenty-four hours. I mean, you're if you're above a a five, right? Mm -hmm. Twenty-four hours. It's basically worthless. Like, I mean, completely worthless. But degrading here. I'm going to take this picture real quick, and I will I will send it over. But yeah, they they looked at also too not just like how much it degrades in terms of its half life, but also actually sprayed these out and looked at disease severity, right? And showed the statistical significance of higher disease severity when you are using hard or alkaline water. Yeah, because like when I do my fungicide tank mixes, I will use that surfactant that lowers my water pH down to 5.5 five because I want all 28 days out of that application. I won't settle for 20 days or 14 days or 10 days. I want, I want my 28 days. Thank you. <laughs> and as a general rule of thumb, and this is you know, highly generalized, um, lower pHs tend to favor most pesticides. The caveat, or the, the obvious one to me that I'm familiar with, would be some sul sulfonylureas are uh, sensitive and actually, low pHs. Actually, most SUs are precipitated out or made less effective at pH under 7. So the only time I don't consider acidifying is if I'm dealing with a SU herbicide, and an example of an SU herbicide would be a lot of the herbicides that you use for nutsedge. 
like Sedgehammer like, or Solero. Or Solero. Yeah, mm-hmm. Solero. You know, those would be, you know, acid sensitive. But uh, otherwise, yeah, like even, for example, Matt, Dilox. You know that Dilox 420? Its degradation time can be measured in, I believe, hours, if not minutes, at a pH above 6.5. It is extremely sensitive to alkaline conditions. So if I'm doing the armyworm tank mix, for example, acidifying surfactant, please. And there's there's lots of them out there too, you know. And this is one of those things where you can modify it yourself with ammonium sulfate or citric acid, or um, get one that's already pre-rolled into uh, a surfactant like PS eight hundred four, right? Um, Li seven hundred. Li seven hundred. So there's definitely a lot of options out there for you to look at in that regard. Yeah. Thank you. Ray and I did chat about this a little bit on the Discord, and that helps. I have one more question, and I don't want to take up too much time tonight because I know it's getting late. No, you're good. Matt, is there any way on the Subvert App Planner or the PACE Climate Appraisal Sheet to account for collecting clippings? I, I Ray's going to hate to hear this, but I love to bag my clippings. And I, I might be doing it from here on out just because I, those edges right along the rock, when I mulch, they get filled with grass clippings and they look better when I bag. I've bagged grass my whole life, so it's not like it's extra work for me or anything. But Okay. Uh, yeah, I on think the, that's easy to modify to track that, yeah. Okay. You, know, you see, I have nothing against people bagging clippings as long as they are aware of nutrient removal. You see, I got nothing against it. It's just that when I see somebody bagging clippings and making no effort to replace what they're taking out, and in the meantime, the the turf progressively declines, that's when I have issues. Conversely, I also have issues when I see clippings picked up on a large site, for example, and due to budget constraints, they don't have the budget to truly replace what they're pulling out. Then I, you know, call attention to it. I call it out and I say, okay, every time you fill up that 50 gallon bag with clippings, I look at that as taking nutrients away you're harvesting nutrients and by the way i became very aware of nutrient removal from a field early on in my life so it is not a new concept to me and I, I I think there's something on that sheet, Matt, that tells you how many how much you're removing 
God damn, I can't remember it. It might yeah. say it and you just have to go ahead, Ryan. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say that the on climate appraisal, you can't do that. Right. For and, and figure out what you're going to consume during the season. Right. And then account for right. that if you're going to remove it. So it is a thing. I think what's the, you know, the most important part and, and especially in your case, right. Because of such a limited time, that you have to be at peak growth, it would be useful to be aware of that, right? And, you know, we talked about not not necessarily needing to add P and things like that. And that being said, you know, uh, foliar or what are sometimes referred to as foliar apps might be a way that you supplement some of that, right? And as opposed to what Ray said in terms of soil loading, right? So these are things, I mean, these are like second and third and fourth level things. I'm not saying that you're, you know, incapable of doing this, but like, and I don't see anything else necessarily in your program that you need to kind of get set before you ascend to that level. So those are the things I'd be thinking about, right? Like what are the right ways for me to apply nutrients? You've already talked about backpack spraying or adding urea in a spray fashion right and spoon feeding that and that's one thing but also to that effect right you're actually going to be giving the plant the requisite amount of nitrogen at the right time now as opposed to just literally carpet bombing your lawn right with nitrogen so how is that going to react from p and k uptake like what are you going to be putting in what are you going to be getting out I think you're going to find some interesting things. If you went in only for next year and rode that out, I don't think you'd be wrong to do it. I wouldn't worry about it. But I also think too that, you know, good soil sampling will tell you a lot about where you're going. And then, you know, the other thing that we haven't really talked about a ton is just the physical conditions of your soil, right? Physical properties of rocky soil and what it's like to get water in there and how well it holds water, right? These are all things that... I, I think it'll be interesting to come back this time next year and talk to you again, right? Have the same conversation and say, okay, hey, now that you've, you know, sort of uh, Ray's favorite term, unthrusted, you know, a lot of what you've done, what, what's the next step, right? Or steps to take uh, in that journey. So I'm excited to see it. I think you're, you know, I, I, I applaud you greatly. Um, for just asking the questions and not being afraid to reach out to dipshits like us um, for our opinion, because, you know, we've killed a lot of grass between us, right? Um, willingly and unwillingly, voluntarily and involuntarily. But we've also, you know, had, had a lot of success in doing that too. And so I appreciate you coming on here and talking to us. I hope that this will serve as a model for other folks that, are new to it that are still getting into it to ask themselves better questions and to not be afraid to come on here and just chat, right? Like we can get down on your level, meet you where you guys already are. So I'll shut up and any other things from the boys? I know now before we, before we roll out of here, we got a couple things to go over. Matt might have a little bit of housekeeping and then I know we've got mail, right? So, Jay Pink, why don't you do the mail thing real quick? Uh oh, somebody's muted. He's trying to talk. 
He's talking just to somebody before, else. He's talking before we move on to the mail, I was going to say, if you are a channel member and you filled out the GI leave, uh, GIE live show <laughs> form, check your, check your email, check your spam mail. We sent out an email blast. And, uh, and before we open that up to the EPP program, uh, we just want to make sure everybody gets the opportunity to take advantage of that before it moves on to EPP. Because once it goes to EPP and it's full, it's done, uh, and we're already close to being sold out on it. And so we just want to make sure those guys uh, that uh, earn the uh, the first opportunity get to seize that. All right. Check your email, check your spam mail, and get back to us and let us know. Uh, Jay Pink, you've got mail. Uh, and I wasn't ready for the sounder there, uh, Demay. So um, I did it for you. Right. I tried. Hell yeah! So, so real, <laughs> real quick. Uh, we've got a fairly decently long email. That uh, apologies to Scott if I ended up trimming it where I shouldn't have. But uh, he's basically got multiple questions. I tried to edit it down. So he lives in northern Alabama. Uh, in the last two weeks, he had at least five inches of rain. He's got another cold front com- or a cold front coming through in the next two weeks, and Poa kicks him in the butt every spring. He's got uh, Tiff four nineteen. Where, where is he at again? Northern Alabama. I missed that. I'm sorry. Yep. No, you're good. Alabama. Uh, and so about two weeks ago, just before all that rain came through, he threw down uh, fertilizer with prodiamine in it, and he used half the bag which got him about 40% of the calendar yearly rate. He was going to do the rest of the bag in the next two weeks to get him to that 80% rate. Uh, his first question, should he be concerned that any or a majority of that first application would have washed away? Yes, he should be concerned about it, but here's the thing. You're still bound by the label, right? So, whether it washed away or not, it's you. We can't quantify how much of that washed away. It's impossible to tell. And so, therefore, we're still bound by the label, and there's nothing you can do about that. Now, if you wanted to diversify AIs and move to a different mode of action, like spectacle, um, to try and make up for whatever your best guess at, at what was lost. Here's the thing: it wasn't a hundred percent loss. I, I can promise you that. Was it 20% or 30%? Who knows? And nobody's going to be able to tell you that. Uh, 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 no matter how you spend it, nobody will be able to tell you that. So, Actually, uh, I have something to... Except Ray. Except Ray. Yeah. No, I have something to add to that. In that... Under the gram. <laughs> yes. Prodiamine is an example of a herbicide that is very tightly bound to the soil. So even if it did rain five inches, unless you had a lot of soil erosion, that prodiamine probably did not move very far or much deeper than where it was supposed to go. So prodiamine is not something that moves away. However, If you are concerned about weed breakthrough, the prudent thing to do is to always split your rates. And when I say split your rates, go at, you know, 
30 to 40% of your annual maximum, apply once, and then apply the same amount 30 to 45 days labor, later, and that, is, that, that method of application is approved by the patent holder and manufacturer of prodiamine of splitting your application because all you do when you saturate the area with the annual maximum, especially in something like Bermuda, is you just prune the heck out of the roots and stress the grass unnecessarily. And, you know, furthermore, you don't get the same kind of longevity that you would get if you were to split your application over 45 days versus applying it all at once. So, you know, you didn't lose it, actually, but you still would do well to apply the other 40% of annual maximum 45 days from now. I hope that answered your question. That was great, Ray. He, and that Thanks. is some of the stuff I trimmed out was him asking different modes of action, and he listed 72 different products. Um, so next, he uh, says, I'm very concerned about environmental factors. Okay. Uh, they normally hit 70s and 80s in the winter, and he wants to know if any of you can point him just in the direction of a good video or write-up on how to determine the best POA prevention considering his area and potential specificity. Here, and I want to make this clear, too. He's going out with prodiamine, and he's going in an area with a very high probability of prodiamine-resistant POA. Anywhere in this area of the southeast from uh, Oak, the state of Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Georgia, uh, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina. <laughs> I mean, the southeast, you, there's no such thing as, as non-prodiamine-resistant POA. It, you're going to find it widespread throughout. Um, so what I would suggest at this point moving forward is going ahead and making the jump to spectacle. And as far as, so University of Tennessee puts on POA day every year. Um, and you can look up University of Tennessee POA day and watch the, the, the live stream of it, where they go through and look at all the research plots they do as far as testing these various programs, knowing they're dealing with a decent amount of, uh, uh, you know, D, uh, DNA resistant POA, right? So, yeah, I think I think that would be, you know, the other thing too would be diversifying by not only using a product like Spectacle, but including a post-merger product like it. And this is what you'll see a lot of at POA Day is like a combination application of um, Spectacle followed by Spectacle and Simazine or Spectacle and Simazine followed by Spectacle and uh, Monument, um, or Spectacle and Monument followed by Spectacle and Revolver. You know, all these different kind of formulations there. And like I said, it, it, you will get a pretty, um, a pretty good strategy. But I will warn you, you will faint at the cost of implementing these strategies. There's no doubt about it. 
There's nothing cheap about it because the value of controlling POA in the South is that great. All right, and uh, finally, Matt. Um, so I cleared it with Asami. She totally said that I could try to convince you to shotgun a truly in the after show. So she said, uh, she said she knows you got to wake up early, take the kids, do the running, be be all athletic and junk. Um, but she said she has no problems if you want to shotgun a truly or have a, a whiskey. So I'm I'm saying if you know maybe we got. Uh, truly, make your shotgun one. It's your birthday on Monday. Might as well make you celebrate it. We'll do one in the after show. We'll do one in the after show. Nice. Everybody, thank you for tuning in tonight. Dude, backer, thanks for coming on. This is a great show. I had a ton of fun talking to you. I had a ton of fun learning about the rest of the United States that I didn't know existed. Everyone, we're moving on to the show after the show. If you don't know about the show after the show, you have to be a channel member. Buy us an airport beer. We'll give you access to it. But I want to warn you, if you can't handle bad words, if you can't handle grown men having grown men conversations, if you get nervous about these types of things, if you practice faith-based agronomy where you believe something works because you believe it works, it's probably not for you. But if you're into that kind of thing, if you're into de- debunking myths, if you're into, eh, you know, kind of the guy crowd hanging out, you may want to check it out. Toxic masculinity at its finest. It's the show after the show. If you join, you can find the link posted to the channel members. Join the private Discord and head on over. We'll see you on the next one. Take it easy. <laughs>